Our reading today is from John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of God. All right, good. I asked you at the beginning, you know. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Val. Appreciate that. Where is it that you feel most close to God? And, you know, I think it's true that if you ask most people today, they would say what you said to me earlier, that uh, we feel most close to God in nature. It's one of the great things about us when the weather is nice like this, being able to uh, worship right next to the horses and, you know, and next to this beautiful mountain under the shade of this mesquite tree that God planted for us. We feel close to God when we're in the middle of nature. Um, and most of the time, there are a lot of people who say, I don't go to church. I don't need to go to church to experience God. What's great about for us right now is we can go to church and experience nature all at the same time. I mean, not many people get that opportunity to do that. So um, uh, really glad that you're here for this. Yeah. Um, where do we feel the presence of God? We feel it in nature. Well, if we're ever going to un- understand this story, which Janice just read for us today, we need to think very differently about how they experienced God back then. We tend to experience God in nature. I think we experience God in a lot of other ways, too. We experience God at birth and death and marriage, don't we? Most of us see those as very spiritual events as well. Um, but in any case, in the, in, in the time of Jesus' time, they experienced God in a very different way. In this story, which is a little bit of a confusing story for us at first, Jesus walks into a temple, he clears it out, and he says this is a bad thing, and it's the very first thing he does there in Jerusalem. And we kind of think, well, why is Jesus getting so mad, and is it okay to get mad? We see the wrong things in this story. If we want to really understand what John the Gospel writer was trying to teach us, we need to understand more about the temple and its place in Jewish society as the place where they experienced God. So I've called this talk, Where to Find God? And we're going to ask ourselves, based upon this text here today, where can we find God? But we won't know how to ask that question or what John has to say about that question until we can understand where did they expect to find God. And they expected to find God in the temple. 
So this morning, I want to talk about this temple thing in this chapter 2, verse uh, one, uh, 12 and following, under three headings. You can jot these down in the notes if you like. We want to look today at the meaning of the temple, the cleaning of the temple, and the raising of the temple. If we understand these three things, we will know why this was such a big deal and how it affects us in terms of our experience of God. And my, my sense is that in the same way that they had some misunderstandings about how to experience God in their day and didn't understand what God was doing new among them, we sometimes today can have some misunderstandings about how best to experience God. So let's consider, first of all, the meaning of the temple. And I gave you just one fill-in under each of these things so I could talk about them more easily. The meaning of the temple for them would be this. The meaning of the temple is the presence of God among His people. The presence of God among His people. You see, the temple in that day was the place where God met humanity. It was where God was. It's where you, uh, it was the place where God really lived in a lot of ways. And the sacrifices were there, and the presence of God was there. The temple was the living, breathing, beating heart of the whole Jew, Jewish nation and the, and, the, and the place of Israel. In fact, it, it dominated the whole landscape of that city. The city of Jerusalem really was a city that was built around a temple. The temple was really ground zero of Jewish spiritual life. It was the place where God was present. It was the place where sin was forgiven because there was this understanding that humans on their own are not worthy to be in God's presence. So the temple is a place that God has put in place where He can come down to meet with people and where they can come to find forgiveness so that they can meet with God. And that's really important for us to understand that. Um, and, and it's important for us to understand not only that, but how important this is event is in the life of Jesus' ministry. Now, if we want to be careful readers, I hope that you are reading through the Gospel of John. I've made it a point to read through it each week. This week, your assignment is, if you've got yourself a Bible that you can write in, is to go through, when you read the Gospel of John, notice all the emphasis on locations. One of the things that I have done on my reading of John, and you might do, is you can take different colored pencils, all right? And when you read through the Gospel, every time you see a location, in this case, Jerusalem, Give it a little red mark or a green mark if you think green reminds you of a place. And, if you th and, and, the, and the reference to time is another thing that's important. Every time you see a reference to time, three days, the next day, Saturday, Sabbath, a relation, and then also names. Are, so I often do that when I want to kind of get a feel for the flow of a book. So your assignment this week or the next three weeks if you're reading through it is to find a Bible you don't mind writing in and to mark all the, all the time you see a place and you see time and then a name, you know, so, all right, anyway, as you do that, let's see what we learn as we look at this text right now. After this, well, after this is a reference to time, after what? After the miracle at Cana in Galilee. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. There's a reference to time and a place, a town of Capernaum. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is very important. When the temple, uh, the clearing of the temple occurred, it occurred during the month of Passover, one of the most holy times of the year. There were three times a year when Jewish males were supposed to come back to Jerusalem, no matter where they lived. 
and their families. One of them was Passover time. Passover was a huge event, kind of like Wild West Days in Cave Creek or something, or Christmases, you know, at, at, it just lots of stuff going on, lots of busyness. Um, so, uh, uh, so it occurs at Passover, all right? And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So now Jesus has left Galilee, which is up into the north, and he's made a trek, we would say, down to Jerusalem because it's south. But in the Bible, Jerusalem was always referred to as up. No matter where you were, Jerusalem was up, okay? And, and there are different things about the way they viewed, uh, you know, geography. For us, north and south are the main things. For them, east and west were the main things. But in any case, every time you went to Jerusalem, they said they did that because Jerusalem was the most important place to them, but also because Jerusalem was up on a hill. You always had to go up to get Jerusalem from wherever you were, okay? So they went up to uh, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple. So now we're not just in Jerusalem. We're in the temple, and it's the Passover time. He found these, these uh, uh, money changers with oxen and doves and, and, and seating, and he makes this whip, and he drives them all out. Okay? So the important thing about this story is that it occurs in the temple at Passover, one of the three most holy days of the year. In order to understand the importance of the temple, let me take you on a really quick survey of the story of the earth, all right? When God created humanity, it was not an accident. It was part of his design. And God lived among us. God walked with Adam and Eve, right? There was fellowship and closeness. And we might say heaven and earth were united together, the, the place of God and the place of the earth were together, one, to get, you know what I'm saying? And there was beautiful fellowship and unity and everything was perfect. But as you know, before long, man, humans rebelled against God and said, God, we like this earth that you've created, but we kind of like to run it ourselves. We think we can do a better job. And so a divorce, a fracture occurred between heaven and earth and a separation. So God no longer walked on the earth. There was a separation. So, Creation, God walked among humanity. Then we had the fall, the coming of sin in the world, and then humanity walked without God. So it's like we had, as human beings, we had and still have this memory of a closeness with God, this God of love and, and, and joy and, and beauty. These things are part of but they're a memory of that. Okay? Now, sometimes God showed up. He showed up to Abraham. He showed up to Isaac. He showed up to Jacob. He showed up to Joseph, and when he showed up, he made promises and had some certain things in mind. But God was always sort of out there, up there, and away, okay? And he had called them to be. All right, so then later on, fast forward until about 1500 B.C., and then we have Moses coming when God shows up to Moses. And God says, I'm going to take these people out of Egypt and bring them to my promised land. So God rescues his people from Egypt, and what God brings him up to a mountain, and he establishes his covenant with him and Moses, and then, um, and then God begins, and this is important, from that point on, God begins to live. You're all getting mesquite on your hair, aren't you, huh? Hopefully it's not too problem. No, it's mesquite. Don't worry. Okay. Or something that the birds are dropping. Oh, my dad always had a birdie, birdie in the sky. You guys ever know that? Any of you remember that poem? Yeah, I won't say. This is church. <laughs> Please don't do that in my eye. <laughs> Whatever. Is that just, did my dad make, I never knew, the, my dad would say these things when I was a kid. I didn't know if they were stuff he made up or not. Anybody ever heard that little poem? 
You have. Okay, good. I'm glad. Yeah, so unless you and my dad knew one another. Okay. All right. In any case, I think it's just mesquite leaves. But having said that, at the story of the Exodus, some of you have started to read the Bible. You read through Genesis. You start reading through Exodus. It's all kind of exciting, you know? And he brings him out of the plagues, and he brings him up to the mountain, and he establishes his covenant, and blood is shed, right? And they say, yeah. And he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. The covenant, the reestablishment of a this is really exciting if you think about it, of God's relationship with his people. And then you start reading in Exodus, and then you get to some really boring stuff. Anybody know what it is about 24 and following? Yeah. The boring stuff is, he says, now this is how you're going to build a tabernacle for me. Get this guy Bezalel and, and make it this way and make it that way. And remember, Jesse, you're probably listening to it, and you think, oh, my goodness, what's going on? This is boring. That's boring to us, but it was not boring to them. Because this was the, the place God designed for them to meet with him, where he would meet with them. What if God could say, Dave, I just want to hang out with you in this, and, and you build a little you know, uh, bungalow outside here. You, know? you think that's pretty exciting. This was in their history. This was the evidence that God had called them and God, that wanted, God wanted to be with them. And so this temple is this, not a temple, but a tabernacle is built. And then what do we, we read about the pillar of fire and the cloud. What does that all represent? The presence of God. And Moses would go into the tabernacle. He would get glowing because he's in the presence of God. The Shekinah glory would be in the tabernacle when it was built. And then the glory would move and they would fall. What are they following? The presence of God. This is the sense we belong to God. And he's taken to that promised land and they get there. And what do they do? They say, we don't want to go. We're afraid. And so God says, well, uh, if you don't want to go, all right, you can stay in the desert for 40 years. You'll all die off, and we'll take only the children. And then they said, okay, let's go anyway. But God wasn't with them, and what happened when they went in? They all got beat. They got, you know, so they lived in the desert for 40 years. Then God brings them into this promised land, and when they get there, uh, David has, we have Saul, then we have David, and we have Saul, but David says, Lord, you've given us this great city. You've given us this great land, but there's no permanent place for you to live. There's no permanent place for you. I want to build you a temple. Now, God, interestingly or not, I've always thought, never really commanded them to build a temple. He it was a concession. Okay. God was happy to be portable. He was happy to worship outdoors. He was in a tabernacle. But David wanted a permanent house for God. So David planned that temple. His son uh, Solomon built that temple. And when they built that temple, they had this great gathering, which was representing this is where God is. This is the place where we make our sacrifices, where God, though he is holy and we are not, is going to meet with us. And when that happens, the Shekinah glory of God came in that temple. They couldn't even have church. It was, they couldn't get in. It was just so full of the presence of God. This is part of their story. Like when I talk to you about the American Revolution, you say, that's my story, right? Whether I was alive then or not. No, Steve was alive in the Revolution, but most of us weren't. <laughs> Sorry, teasing. But that's our story. That was their story. God had rescued them out of Egypt, brought them to the Promised Land, uh, uh, made a covenant where they belonged to Him. This is the meaning of that temple. Um, the temple was that place where the garden, that small place where the Garden of Eden was recreated, where God came to be with humans. He didn't, wasn't everywhere. 
He came there, and, that, and He was there. And every year in the Holy of Holies, the Day of Atonement, all this, we would see God's presence come, okay? All right, well, as you know, time goes on, and they begin to ignore God. They want a God they can see, that they can control, that they can manipulate. And so they worship other gods. Finally, they are captured by a, a, an opposing nation, and the temple is raised to the ground. It's just not one stone upon another. And this is like, you would have thought that the whole nation of Israel would have died back then. In fact, one of the evidences that God cares about this nation of Israel is humanity's done everything to try to kill it off, and yet still this nation exists because of this memory of what God has done and promised to them and will do for them. Okay, so we have, but what happens is the temple was destroyed. The people were put under judgment, and God's presence was gone. They still had the faith in Him, the trust that someday God would come back to His temple, all right? But they were living uh, as um, aliens and without the presence of God. Now, then there was a remnant that came back, and during the time of Ezra, they built another temple. And when they built that temple, there was really, as far as we can tell, no long, it was the right temple built the right way, but no more sense of God's glory coming into it, not God's presence. Like, they don't know if they're still under condemnation or not. You know, they, 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 God has blessed them and brought, but still, God is going to come someday and fill the temple and fulfill His promises. This was their expectation. The, and they, they still felt under the judgment of God, no sense of the glory of God in the temple, but sacrifices had resumed, and they were awaiting someday a Messiah who will one day defeat the pagans and restore the temple, okay? This is the atmosphere that they're living under for hundreds of years when they're thinking about someday God is going to come. Someday he'll restore it, all right? And so then, uh, in, 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 about, in about 160 B.C., in between the times of the Testaments, do you know when the Old Testament ends, it ends in 400 B.C.? And then Jesus is born in 4 B.C. Jesus wasn't born on his birthday. He was born four years before Christ, believe it or not, um, uh, because they got the dating wrong. But in any case, there's 400 years, and about two centuries before Jesus, different, uh, different powers were in charge of Israel, and there was this great uh, revolt of the Maccabees, Judas Maccabee. And what happened was that a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes had, had, had sacrificed a pig on the altar. Now, if you're a Jew and someone sacrifices a pig, pork, on the altar. You're just defiling. And you're doing the worst kind of desecration of the temple. They've been defiled. This made them all so angry. They actually revolted against the Persians at that point, I think, or the Seleucids. And, uh, and Judas Maccabees, Maccabees probably means Judas the Hammer. Judas the Hammer came, and he was a member of the priestly tradition. Um, and they, de they revolted, and for about 60 years, they were independent, more or less. But what made Judas the great king that he became the Hasmonean dynasty that he developed was because he had restored that temple. See, the temple was of huge importance. Now you come to Herod the Great, who in the, about 20 B.C. starts to remodel and rebuild this. It's already been built, but a small one. And so for 46 years now, 46 years, he's been rebuilding that temple. That's a long time. In fact, it took more than 60 years before it was done, all right? And this is now A.D. 26, when Jesus enters in the Passover, okay? And, and he comes into this temple, and what he sees turns his stomachs, and he begins to do something else. He begins to now clean the temple. So we've seen the meaning of the temple. 
which is that the presence of God is among his people. All right? That's what's so important about that. Where is God? We're expecting him to come and to meet us in the temple. Let's consider, secondly, the cleaning of the temple. The cleaning of the temple. Jesus comes in. Oh, my pages will not stay in place. Jesus comes in and he finds in the temple those who are selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my house a house of trade. All right? Jesus comes in and he cleans the temple. What do you want to see about the cleaning of the temple? Well, you want to see this briefly is that the cleaning of the temple is the prerogative that's a funny word, but it's a prerogative of the king on behalf of his, of his people. The king is the representative. So the cleaning of the temple is the prerogative of the king on behalf of, on behalf of his people. Think about the historical background. Why did they have a temple? David, the king, wanted the temple, right? God didn't design it. David wanted it. Why did they have a temple? Solomon, the king, built the temple. Later on, what happened? Josiah, the king, renovated the temple. If you remember your Bible stories, there's a time when Josiah came and they found the book of the law. He's just a young king. They renovated the, tape, the temple. Judas the Ham Maccabee in 164 B.C., he, uh, he, uh, he purified the temple. In fact, do you know why Jews celebrate Hanukkah? It was to remember that revolt of Maccabees, Judas Maccabees in 164 B.C. Bet you didn't know that, right? All right, um, and uh, um, and so uh, so one and, and then when Herod comes, he kind of rebuilds the temple. So the kings have a special interest in this temple. All right, so um, so when Jesus comes in, and and the question is, what right do you have to purify the temple, to clean the temple? Implicit in that is Jesus is acting like he's in charge, like it's his charge. It's his right to do that. You know, like, let's, let's say both of us, all of us just kind of walked in there in another hour and said, all right, everybody, get up, let's go. We said, what? You, what are you doing? You don't belong. You don't, you know, but if the owner comes in and says, all right, everybody, come, let's go, right? We all, he's got a right to do that. So when Jesus comes in, he's not just messing up what's going on, although that was going on. He's standing as if, all right, I'm in charge. This is why, in part, this was such a big deal. This temple was the place where God met with his people. And Jesus comes as if he's the king saying, all right, we're going to shape things up around here. It's the prerogative of the king. Now, here's what's going on in this place. If you were a Jew and you lived in what was called the diaspora or the dispersion, which meant that you didn't live in your home and lived far away, you had to come in for sacrifice and you had to sacrifice a perfect lamb. Well, you might start off with a perfect lamb at your home you know, 100 miles away. But how do you know for sure he's going to be perfect when you get there? You see? And now you're in trouble. So most of the time, they didn't bring a lamb with them. They bought a lamb when they got there. That was perfectly normal. Nothing wrong with that. They'd come in or, or turtle dove, whatever they were supposed to sacrifice, they'd buy one there. So it was appropriate to buy a lamb. Also, they had to pay an annual half-shekel temple tax. Well, they had different kinds of monies, but the Jewish people, the, the priests, did not want a picture of Caesar on their money. They did not want that. So when you got there, you had to change your money to get a picture of a, a kind of money from Tyre, which had no image of Caesar on it. So you had to change the money. So changing money and selling oxen and that sort of thing, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all, all right? The problem was not what they were doing, but where they were doing it. 
they were doing it within the temple courts, okay? They were doing it inside the temple courts. Now, in terms of how the temple, the temple was organized, God had various levels of, you know, that you could get it. Like, if you want to go to the White House, some, how many of you have ever been to the White House? Yeah, I never have. How many of you have ever been to the Oval Office? You know, there's... <laughs> Steve has, all right. Uh, how many have ever been inside the president's bedroom? <laughs> you know, there's certain places you can't go. And in the temple, there were certain places you couldn't go. The most holy place was in the middle of the temple. Only one guy could go there only one time a year, the high priest. And there was the holy place out there that the priests could go. And there was the place where the Jews could go. But there was an outer court, which was called the court of the Gentiles. This was the place that anybody could come, not just Jews. And you see, God always wanted to have the temple be a welcoming place because his purpose in calling Jerusalem was not just to bless Jerusalem, but through, excuse me, calling Israel was not just to bless Israel, but through Israel to bless the whole world. So the outside court of the Gentiles was supposed to be the place where anybody seeking after God could come. It was meant to be a welcoming opening place. This was the place where they're doing all that buying and selling. They had turned it into a marketplace, and Jesus was mad about it because this wasn't the right place to do that. That you can do that, do it across the hill. Let them exchange their money there. But what they'd done is they'd, they'd begin to really merchandise their faith. Now, there's a whole sermon on that subject, but we won't get into that. Um, in any case, this is why he was upset about it. Because the temple had become very commercialized, trivialized, trinketized, you know, some of the stuff that you might bother you sometimes about the way we treat Christianity, you know. Um, they were, Jesus was bothered by that too. And also, the, the temple was a source of a lot of banking. The, uh, debts were kept, records of debts were kept in the temple. So it became kind of a symbol of oppression, even for the Jewish people. Like, what have they done to my church? You know, what have they done to my temple? All right? So Jesus comes in to clean out that temple. What Jesus ended up doing there, remember, this is the path. We're talking about when Jesus cleaned the temple uh, in the early church. Um, when Jesus cleaned out that, he was there during the Passover time, the busiest time of the year. When they'd come there expressly to make sacrifice, what did he do? He ended up stopping the whole temple proceedings with no money changing and no sacrifices. He just stopped the whole thing, right? He's basically saying, essentially he's saying, there's something new going on here. What we're going to begin to see is that what's going on is this long-awaited hope for God to come back is happening in the person of Jesus. You were not going to find God anymore in a temple on a holy day. God was walking among you. That was Him. No more need for sacrifices. No more need for temple tax. No more need for an outer court, inner court, holy court. Here's God right here for us. God comes to us in the person of Jesus. That's the cleaning of the temple. So let's talk then finally about the raising of, of the temple. Now, you can spell the word raising however you want, and you'll be right. You can spell it R-A-Z-I-N-G, which means the tearing down of the temple, or you can spell it the way I intend it, R-A-I-S-I-N-G, which is the raising of the temple, because both are true, right? The temple was raised, and the temple was raised, right? Okay, so let's see how this happened. Jesus, they say, well, who are you? Who, who do you think you are? And, uh, Verse 18, uh, what sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? Like, well, right, you have to do this. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, 
and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple. That's why it started in 20 B.C., now it's 26 A.D., 46 years, and it actually went for another 20 years. It went for a long Herod didn't finish it. His sons finished it for him. The temple was finished in A.D. 63, after the church had been going for about two decades, and about seven years before Rome came in and destroyed the temple in 70 A.D., and there has never been a temple for Jews since 70 A.D. It's been that long. All right, so that's how important that was in A.D. 70, okay? And you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised, there's our word, from the dead, his disciples remember this, and, and they believe the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The raising of the temple. And here's what I want to say about that. The raising of the temple is the proof that Jesus is both God and King both God and King, that Jesus comes to fulfill all the promises to Israel and become in himself the presence of God. No longer any need to go to a certain place to find God. Jesus is the presence of God. The raising the temple was the proof that Jesus was both God and King. Now, let me give you a couple quick thoughts before I close out here, okay? Um, in John 1.14, which we is the first part of your Bible. Listen to this verse, or if you have your own Bibles. And the Word, God, Jesus, became flesh and lived a, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. When that, I wish you had your Bible in front of you, but when it says, and the Word became flesh and lived among us, or dwelt among us, it's not the word lived. It's not the word dwelt. You know what word it is? tabernacled among us, pitched his tent among us. If you were a Jew, you knew exactly what that meant. You knew about the tabernacle. That was a place where God was. And he's saying Jesus came in the flesh and pitched his tent, tabernacled among us. So we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the place where God meets. He is God, and we meet together with Him. And so when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, what is He talking about? His own body right there. Destroy my life, and three days later I will be raised up. Well, as we gather, whenever we gather, we gather to remember this Jesus. Where do you find God? You don't find Him in a temple anymore. You don't find him even underneath a beautiful mesquite tree in the midst of nature. You can find evidence of God in all those places. But where do you find God? Jesus is God. That's the essence of Christianity. And as God, then, each of us needs to be personally responsive to him. He's got the right to clean the temple, and he's got the right to rule your life, which is good news to you because he's a lot better at it than you are right? He loves you even more than you love yourself. Jesus gave his life. Remember, he, he ended the sacrificial system? Yes, but what did we learn about last week and the week before? Jesus became the sacrifice for us, you see? He came and gave his life for us. So, I ask you to respond to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I offer my life to you. You're the rightful owner of my life. I submit 
to you. This is why this is such a, such a big deal. Jesus comes to those people say, hey, it's, don't think it's in the temple. It's all mixed up anyway. They've kind of ruined that. It's in me. I'm going to give my life for you, and I want to be in charge of your life too. And then there's one more last thing. When Jesus raised up from the dead, he then gives his spirit to us, and then we become, do you know what? the temple of God in this world. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. In him you are also, excuse me, in whom the whole, verse 21, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple into the Lord. In him you are built together as a dwelling place for God's Spirit. God's Spirit lives within us, and we then are, this is important, to become for the world what Jesus was for Israel. He was the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, right? We're the fulfillment of God's promise to the world. The Spirit of God is within us. So we go out and live like the new creation in this world, loving people like Jesus loved, laying down our life for people like Jesus, caring for people, serving people, using all of our resources to help people, doing for others what Jesus did for us. That's why Jesus says at the end of this gospel, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So, let us respond to Jesus, and let us be like Jesus in our world. Let's have prayer as we close. Father, we just really want to thank you for including this story in the Bible, the story about the presence of God. And yeah, we think of you when we hear the beautiful birds sing their songs, even as we hear it right now. And we feel you in the breeze. You remind us of your spirit. And we enjoy the shade of that mesquite tree behind us. And we also enjoy this environment made by human beings where we can gather. All of these remind us of you, but they're not you. You are Jesus who came in the flesh, who is the presence of God among us, who is the king among us, who is the sacrifice for us. We gather together in simplicity, affirming who you are. And I would pray that each of us here today would say, Lord Jesus, you're the king. You should be in charge. Please take charge. Forgive me. Help me know what to do. And help me to be like Jesus at work this week. In his name I pray. Amen.